Monday night, May 6th at the Hyatt Regency in San Francisco. You're invited to join athletes and celebs at the Bay Area Sports Hall of Fame Enshrinement Dinner. Be there to celebrate this year's class featuring Olympic swimmer Jenny Thompson, San Jose Earthquakes legend Chris Wondolowski, Niners Super Bowl hero John Taylor, Sharks icon Patrick Marlowe, and the architect of the Giants dynasty, Brian Sabian. Be a part of this star-studded evening benefiting Special Olympics Northern California. To purchase tickets, visit Bayshoff.org. That's B-A-S-H-O-F.org. You're listening to Morning Tide, the official morning show podcast of the San Jose Sharks. Now, here's your host, Ted Ramey. LeBanc over the line with Marlowe. Kevin LeBanc trying to toe drag it. Marlowe scores! Three overtime wins in a row. Patrick Marlowe returns to the Sharks and does it to the Kings again. Eric Carlson, Burns, shoots, save, made, rebound, bounces in front, Kane sends the backhander, oh. oh no, Burns gave it away, fed forward, long shot toward the net, score for Kyle Connor. He's had a couple of great chances tonight, this one into the empty net. Right now, Noah Gregor gets the face off for the Sharks, backhanded it up the boards, but the Kings shoot it back in deep. Brendan Dillon will lift it over the four checkers. And there's a race, and Gregor's going to win it. Down the left side, moving in, shoots, he scores! Top shelf for Noah Gregor. His first National Hockey League goal is a thing of beauty. And the Sharks are up 3-0. Off the draw, Vlasic shoots and score! That was chipped in front. The Sharks take the lead 3-2. And that was just off of a face-off play inside the offensive zone. I think Timo Meyer got that. His stick was down, also in front of the net, Marlowe and Hurdle. Yeah, big resiliency. You know, it's a back-to-back game. The way we started, it could have been four or five nothing in the first five minutes. So I thought we settled down and, and got to our game. And, uh, you know, I thought this next 50 minutes probably some of the best hockey we've played this year. Yeah, we found a way. I mean, the third period, we weren't very good either, but uh, took some penalties, and the kill was great. Jonah made big saves at big times. So kind of held on at the end there. Um, would have liked to attack a little more in the third instead of sitting back like we did, flipping too many pucks, but uh, we'll take the win right now in the division game. All right, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Morning Tide. Ted Ramey with you as always. I hope everybody had a very, very happy Thanksgiving, and I'm so happy to be with you on another winning Monday where we can talk about the last week of Sharks hockey that was, and we saw more and more high-level quality play from the Sharks, and this is what we were expecting all along. Now, the loss to Winnipeg, yeah, that was not the Sharks' best game. They didn't play great, but you know what? They can't win them all, and I think that, like we saw when their earlier winning streak came to an end, Logan Couture said that sometimes you're able to get a win in spite of the fact that you're not playing your best hockey, and I think the Sharks, looking at those Three straight overtime wins that preceded the loss to Winnipeg. They were not playing their best hockey, but they still found ways to win. And that's what the elite teams in the NHL do. It doesn't matter if you don't have your best game that night. It doesn't matter if you don't have your best player. It doesn't matter if you don't have X, Y, or Z. You're still able to find a way to win in spite of these difficulties. And that's what the Sharks were able to do. And that's what the Sharks have been able to do since the start of November. And the loss to Winnipeg, yes, they were not good. I liked what I saw initially. They took the one nothing lead, but then they gave up five unanswered goals. And let me be the first to tell you, that's not going to be a good way to go about winning a game 
in the NHL or really any sport, if you score once and give up five unanswered or consecutive scores, you're going to find yourself in a deficit. But as I have consistently said over the course of this podcast, to me, it's not about win streaks. It's about taking the lion's share when you're looking at a grouping of games. The Sharks were able to win three out of four this week. The week before, they were able to take two out of three, and that's exactly what they need to keep on doing if they want to claw their way back into the fight for the playoffs. And some of you might have the reaction of, well, Ted, they've played well through the month of November. They've gotten themselves right back into that playoff race. But listen, the pendulum swings, and because the Sharks had that inconsistency to start off the year, I'm not going to be fully satisfied until we see two months of this style of play. Now, I don't expect them to be posting 11 wins in 15 games for every month, but I do expect the San Jose Sharks to be more consistent overall, and we've seen that in one of two months of the season so far. And yes, there were a lot of things that hampered the Sharks in the month of October, but I want to see more of what we've seen in November in December before I start anointing them or start crowning them prematurely. I know what the Sharks are capable of. I know what they've done in the past. I know how much we all view October as an aberration, but I want to see another consistent month of consistent Sharks hockey before I start saying, yes, this team is officially what I think they are. Now, I see them play a style of hockey where it says, yes, that's what I'm expecting from them. That's what we thought they would be from the get-go. But also, they have had these difficult losses like Winnipeg, like Edmonton, where you think to yourself, "Uh uh-oh, which team is this? And you can't ignore the losses in light of winning three of four. Now, you want to be winning three of four. You want to be winning two of three. You want to be winning, again, the lion's share of these games. But you can't ignore these losses. You can't ignore some of the things that haunt the Sharks on nights when they play poorly because you learn more from losses than you do learn from wins. And that's just the way things go in professional sports. But what did we see in those recent losses to Edmonton and Winnipeg? We saw a lot of the same things that haunted the Sharks in the early part of the season. We saw some less than stellar defense. We saw some poor giveaways in the neutral zone or in the defensive zone. And we also saw it early in that game against Arizona. We saw some overall sloppy play. But I think this gets back to one of the best things that you can rely on with the team is are they getting beat or are they in a way shooting themselves in the foot? And I think that When we've watched the Sharks this year, when they have had games when they've struggled, we've seen them shoot themselves in the foot. Now, you can also say that's the other team putting them in a position where they're going to line their foot up right in their sights, and I'm not going to take anything away from those other teams because you put the pressure on a team, you put them into a position where they're down early, they start chasing a game, they start gripping, they start tightening up. That means that you as the opposition are doing your job, but at the same time, the Sharks have a level of play have a level of excellence that we're all accustomed to, and we all see the talent level, and we see they're not able to do it, and we say to ourselves, what's more the reality here? Is the team doing this to the Sharks? Are the Sharks doing this to themselves? And I think that in a lot of these losses early in the year, we've seen them do it to themselves. And again, that's not to take anything away from Winnipeg or Edmonton, but I think that we look at the Sharks and they say, are these mistakes correctable? Can you play better on defense? Can you get rid of this sloppy play? Can you maybe see a better effort across the board? And I think that we all would come to the same answer that, yes, you can see corrections. You can see better efforts. You can see less sloppiness. You can see all these things happen in the midst of a game or in the midst of a season. And I look, again, as the game against Arizona as perfectly in just the micro of what did they do right off the bat? They were sloppy. 
They had bad giveaways. They found themselves in a deficit. What did they do? They tightened up in a good way. They played cleaner hockey, and they relied on their talent, and suddenly that was a 2-1 deficit, a 2-2 tie, and then a 3-2 win, in which we really saw in the third period they didn't play their best hockey. They took some bad penalties, and I think that had to do with fatigue the second night of a back-to-back. But what did they do? They were able to hunker down. They were able to play a brilliant kill once again, and especially when they were just killing left and right in that third period, and we saw ticked off Eric Carlson, and he was just all sorts of upset out there, really impacting the game in a big, big way. I love that. I want to see more pissed-off Eric Carlson. I want to see more red-ass Eric Carlson, and I want to see more of the Sharks in that position where they are in the lead late, and they are having to hunker down, and they are having to rely on their defense. Because, listen, this record-setting streak they're on of two or fewer, it's no surprise. Now, we all look at the firepower the Sharks have and say to ourselves, well, they can outscore anybody on any given night. I agree, but that doesn't mean that's how I want to see it done on any given game. If that's what a game dictates, then good. Go out and do it. But I would rather see the Sharks dictating these games, and I think that's what happened after they fell behind early against Arizona. That became the Sharks game. Arizona was having to play against what we would define as Sharks hockey, and the Sharks were able to find themselves a win. And that, to me, was huge because not just did they dictate the pace of the game after falling behind early. They did have that multi-goal comeback game that they had been lacking so far this year, unless I am completely mistaken. But they were able to find themselves at a deficit. That was a game like we saw against Vancouver a couple Saturdays ago where they could have just rolled over. But instead, they corrected themselves, not just in the midst of the week or amidst of you know the next period. They did it in that first period. And they had a couple giveaways also in that first period after they went down 2 nothing that could have made it 3 and 4 nothing. So it wasn't just like it was those two plays. The first 5-10 minutes of that period, they were rough. But in that 5-10 to 10 minute span, they did start to find themselves. They did start to calm down. They put themselves in a position where they could overall take care of business against Arizona. And they went out there. They played their game. They got a lead. They were challenged late. They had to go on the kill. They had to be stretched. They had to be put through the meat grinder. They now were able to get the win, put it behind them. Now they've got some days off. They don't play until Tuesday night in a big challenge against the Capitals, but they got three out of four on the week. They beat a division opponent, a team that's been good so far this year. They did it on the second night of a back-to-back. They beat the Kings twice, a team they were supposed to beat twice in that week span. They took care of business. The one a mission of the week, of course, was the loss to Winnipeg. And listen, that happens. Winnipeg is a good team, and they've proved that so far this year. And the Sharks, they were not up to the task that night. They shot themselves in the foot, and Winnipeg put them in a position to shoot themselves in the foot. All credit goes to them. But still, we look at these things in sections. We don't say you have to win X, Y, Z amount of games over 82. It's what did the Sharks do this week? They won three out of four. Are you satisfied with that? The answer overwhelmingly is yes. And I think that when you look big picture, you want to see the Sharks getting better week by week, getting better month by month. And that's what we've seen so far in this young NHL season. Now we're getting into the grind of it. Now we're going to see just who the Sharks are, because that's what happens during the months of December and January. You see really who they are. And we look back to last year. This is when the Sharks were capable of playing some of their best hockey and when we had a healthy Eric Carlson out there 
Then he got, you know, banged up with the groin stuff before the All-Star game, and things started to come off the rails a little bit, and then Joe Pavelski got hurt, and just the Sharks weren't the same. They were not as consistent down the stretch last year. Obviously, they made up for it in the playoffs, but you're looking at these same teams that you're going to be challenged with again, St. Louis. You know, look how well they're playing. The Sharks would love to be able to go into a Western Conference final against them again healthy. Now, am I getting ahead of myself? Of course, but you can't. Help yourself but think about these things. And the Sharks put themselves in a hole early on. They're digging their way out of it. But ultimately, you want to see this team start to position themselves. And listen, I know I said you want to see it month to month, but we saw October bad, November good. In very simple terms, October bad, November good. So now, can they make December better than good? Can they make it a month where they start to separate themselves and show night to night that they are one of the elite teams in the NHL. And if they do that, they will start positioning themselves for a good run when we get later into the year. And again, you reap what you sow, and the Sharks had to deal with that in the month of November. They have been able to yield a decent crop out of what they planted in October, but now it's a matter of continuing this rectification and continuing to be the team that we all think they're going to be. All right, I had a really good talk with Dan Rusinowski. While we're still close to that win against Arizona, I want to talk to Dan about that stuff, and then we're going to revisit the second half of the interview where we look a little bit more big picture. We are now joined here on Morning Tide by Dan Rusinowski, the radio play-by-play voice of the San Jose Sharks, and of course he is also doing his part of the Sharks Podcast Network with Teal Report and Tank Talk. Rusey, what's going on, man? How you doing? Well, it's just a beautiful weekend, isn't it? We come back to absolute rain-drenched Bay Area to celebrate all of what we wanted was a parade for just the recent right results. I mean, you know, uh, 11 and 2 and 13 games, Sharks on a a little bit of a roll here, getting back into the thick of the playoff discussion, and all is, uh, is well in Sharkville. Yeah, it really is, and that's incredible considering, I mean, A, when you look at the earlier part of the season when, you know, you're two games into November and you've only got four wins on the year, but just immediately last night, I'm listening to you and Jamie on my way back from the city, and before you guys could even get to your keys of the game, the Coyotes have a 2 nothing lead. The Sharks are playing very sloppy on defense. They're giving pucks away in the neutral zone. They're putting Martin Jones in an uber-bad position, And it looks like the game is all but lost, but they settle down and they walk away. Maybe not with the best win of the year. That's that's up in the air for which one you want to attribute to that. But very much a win that I'm glad that they could get because they hadn't had that that one come from behind victory yet this year that we could really point to from a more than one goal deficit. Last night to me was bigger than I think really the overall final tells us. Dan, do you feel me on that? Uh, I do. And in fact, I think when we look back at the regular season in June of next year, that we're going to look at this game as a a really pivotal game in the season. And I say that for a variety of reasons. The Sharks were playing their fifth game in eight nights. Mm -hmm. That's tough on anybody. It's really difficult. And in fact, they experienced some of the pain from that in the Winnipeg game just before that when they lost five to one. And it it was just a, a really tough, tough game on that Wednesday before Thanksgiving, actually. Then they come back, and on a weird day, they beat L.A. Afternoon game, 1 o'clock start, day after Thanksgiving. The trip to fans probably still kicked in. And they get going, (laughs) and they put together a really great effort and beat the Kings. All right, but now it's back-to-back. They have to play Arizona, a team that I think – 
really was close to making the playoffs last year and, uh, you know, probably didn't have the benefit of the schedule, but an improved hockey club under Coach Rick Tockett. And they go down 2 nothing like that. The thing that was interesting to see was the contrast between the Coyotes, a team that's trying to get back into that playoff discussion on an annual basis, and the Sharks, a team that have been at the Stanley Cup final together with a lot of guys on the club and a lot of experience in situations like this. And I think that that was one of the differences in the game, the fact that the Sharks were, as you said, able to settle down when they were down 2 nothing. And, in fact, they gave up a couple of breakaways right after going down 2 nothing. and we yeah. thought it was going to be a really long night. But, fortunately, uh, that experience, I think, is something that they relied on. And, of course, they got some great goaltending from Martin Jones. I mean, it wasn't his fault that they gave up those two goals, and he came up with some gigantic saves. I remember one on Brad Richardson that was just remarkable in the game and there were several others and I think that that gave the team some extra confidence and then the other thing that happened too was they got some benefit from uh, from four lines uh, over the course of the last couple of days Noah Gregor was put back into the lineup and he scored that beautiful goal against Jonathan Quick on Friday uh, for his first NHL goal and point but that line was also supplemented by Dylan Gambrell coming back mm-hmm. into, into action because of the injury to Auntie Suomela. And Gambrell did something that I, I think is going to be maybe a portent of things to come in his career. Just digging the puck out of the back uh, uh, behind the net and coming out in front and pivoting like a goal scorer does, like a great offensive player does, and snapping one home uh, to tie the game at two. That was a big, big goal for the Sharks in that game in in the desert. And I think that as we look back at this game, I think we're going to look at the challenges of the schedule, uh, the way that the the younger guy become a bigger part of the results and the solution with the team, the goaltending and everything starting to come together. I just think that this is going to be a a pretty important game as we look back on it later on. Yeah, and I think one of the other things that I'm viewing as an important takeaway, and it may not be as important in the big picture, but I think just in the micro was when Eric Carlson came back on the ice in the third period after he took a penalty that he was not very much in agreement with at all. And I I thought I had heard they said that Patrick Marlowe actually told him to calm down after um, it was called. He came back out onto the ice and played as angry as I have seen him as a member of the San Jose Sharks and got in the middle of a couple of key passes where the Sharks were able to continue to be brilliant on their penalty kill, which was such a huge part of last night's win. Just your thoughts on that, again, that pissed-off Eric Carlson that we saw on the ice last night. Well, I think it was interesting to see, especially when, you know, Jamie, in my view of it, was he deserved the penalty. Uh, that was that was part <laughs> of it. But, uh, you know, I think maybe he could have been mad at himself. Maybe he thought it was a bad call. I know he was yelling at the official there for a little bit. But he focused all of that and channeled it into – production on the ice and that's the kind of player he is he's just a game changer he's special he was the number one star in the afternoon game against the LA Kings because of not because of anger but because of his ability to channel his his game into something really special and I think that part of what's going on with him too is he's really comfortable with Mark Edward Vlasic in fact they're comfortable with each other as a D pair he has total confidence that Vlasic is going to be there for him when he goes out on his merry way into one of those great forays into the offensive zone and he's got the skating skills to get back himself too as he's done throughout his whole career when things don't go perfectly on one of those little jaunts so uh, it's a nice combination 
You got Brent Burns also with Radim Shimek in a similar scenario. But uh, back to your point on Carlson, he just when he plays focused like that, he's just a, an almost unstoppable, and he makes the Sharks so much a better team. And to me, Dan, it just speaks to the greater picture of what we've been seeing with the Sharks because the slow start to the year was impacted by injuries. It was impacted by suspension. It was impacted by the births of children. It was just not a settled start. It was not you know anything that you could really look to as being ideal. And then you combine that with maybe some guys getting off to some uncharacteristically slow starts, uh, particularly on the goal scoring end. You know, you weren't seeing Couture get the goals we're used to seeing him getting. Same thing with Hurdles. Same thing with Timo Meyer. And then you just kind of put that all together with the you know the amount of pressure that's on the Sharks and put them in a very tight situation. And they have rectified that throughout this month, but. You know, if you could, Dan, just speak to the fact that we are seeing more from Timo Meyer and we are seeing more from Logan Couture and we are seeing more from Tomas Hurdle when he's been healthy as of late. And, hey, let's not lo- overlook the fact that the Sharks were able to get some key wins without Tomas Hurdle out there on the ice. I mean, like you alluded to with the four lines getting it done, it just seems that when we're watching the Sharks on the ice right now, it's much more indicative of what I think you and I think they're capable of versus what we saw through the month of October overall. Well, that, that's Sharks hockey, you know, pressure with four lines, uh, you know, roll the defenseman, make sure that everybody's contributing and get the goaltending made on the penalty kill, which they've been all season long and has been their saving grace when things weren't going that way. And then, uh, you know, be opportunistic. I, I just think that those are things that uh, characterize Sharks hockey. You know, thinking about the first couple of months too, Ted, the schedule was definitely and has not definitely been the ideal for, say, a season ticket holder either, because a lot of games have been sort of uh, bunched up together, mm-hmm. a couple of long home stands. And uh, on the other hand, for the Sharks, it's actually been helpful in a way because they've had that long home stand uh, to get things together and to work on things in practice. They've had some lengthy road trips to bond as a club and to deal with some of the adversities away from uh, their adoring fans. And I think. I think actually it's now going to start to settle in as well. Sharks have had a tradition under Pete DeBoer of starting a little bit slowly. And in fact, when he was even coaching the New Jersey Devils uh, back in earlier in his career, uh, they, they didn't really kick in for a little bit of a while. But then once they got everything, uh, you know, sort of planted in the way that they wanted it, they've always just taken off and really uh, been dominant. And so I think that that's, that's a tribute to him and his coaching staff, but also a tribute to the, the guys that the, have been assembled by the general managers that that Pete has worked for they've gotten him the players that 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 play that style of hockey he's coached them really well and I think we're seeing that once again we're going to see the Sharks I think do very well for the rest of the season health knock on wood permitting all right we will get back to the second half of that interview and of course Dan's point about health permitting it is it's you know that's the biggest factor that you cannot coach for that you cannot technically prepare for I mean you can do everything you can to limit soft tissue injuries but catastrophic injuries as are prone to happen in professional sports or in all sports. Sometimes bad things happen and that's, that's what you don't want to have. And I think the sharks obviously do a great job of avoiding those big injuries, but life happens. So uh, again, them staying healthy is such a huge factor, but you know, the, the things don't get any easier for the sharks. They're back at it Tuesday night facing Alex Ovechkin and the Capitals. Then they're going to be on the road They take on a good Hurricanes team on Thursday. Then on Saturday, they're in Tampa Bay taking on the Lightning. And then on Sunday, they're taking on the Panthers. So not only do they have home a good East Coast team, then they go East 
and they play three really good East Coast teams. And then they follow that up on Tuesday. They're in Nashville taking on the Predators. So this is a big week for the Sharks. This is their biggest challenge of the year up to this point. Can they come through with a 500 record? And then looking beyond to the next week with that Nashville game before they come back home to host the Rangers, can the Sharks maybe take three out of five? Can they take four out of five? Can they take five out of five? I mean, these... These are the questions that I think the Sharks are asking themselves right now. To me, you're happy if you walk away with three out of five out of the next stretch that extends into next week, just because it is such a difficult stretch. Now, at home, the Capitals are really, really, really good, but I still look at the Sharks team and say, at home, you should beat anyone. You should be able to be on your home ice and just mark that up as a win. It doesn't always go that way, but that's how I think that I want the Sharks looking at it. I think that's how they themselves will look at it. This is our house. No one's going to come in here, no matter how good your record is, no matter who your captain is, no matter whose record your captain is potentially going to break over the course of his career. You want to be able to say, this is our tank. You're not going to come in here and beat us. Whether or not that's the actual reality, we got to wait and see for Tuesday night, but it's going to be a huge game. I'm stoked for it. Anytime Obi comes into town, you always want to see just what he brings to the table. And again, we want to see more saves than goals, but you love the challenge of seeing one of the game's all-time greats come into the building. And then the other factor at play here is that if the Sharks want to continue this role they're on, if they want to continue to prove that October was an aberration, they really have no choice but to keep on winning these games, even in spite of what huge challenges they are. That being said, I do recognize that all is not lost, even if they only win two out of five over this stretch. It's an incredibly difficult stretch of the season, and you can't win them all. When you go east, when you host the teams that are playing as hot as Washington is right now, you don't want to overreact to a loss, and you don't want to overreact to a win. But if we look at the overall picture from the Sharks right now, what are some of the things we like to see? We see that Eric Carlson is more and more looking like the impact player that we all know he's capable of, and we didn't see that right off the bat, and there's numerous reasons for that. He had so much stuff going on in his personal life, and of course he was feeling a huge amount of pressure so, you had Eric Carlson, you got him playing better hockey now. You've got Logan Couture scoring more goals and just looking overall better and better out there on the ice. Tomas Hurdle is back out there for the Sharks. Of course, you were able to win some huge games without him, but now that he's back and relatively healthy, you'll love to see that he can go back out there and contribute. Uh, Timo Meyer is heating up with more goals. You're getting guys like Gregor, Gambrell. They're contributing to the overall picture. Ferraro is out there. He's contributing. He's a guy who came up from the college ranks and was just ready to go. These overall pieces are leading the Sharks to be a team that is improving month to month. And you need that depth. You need to have, you know, after your your first six, you need everybody else to be able to contribute in terms of those forwards. But you're able to get very, very high-level play on every line from the Sharks right now. And, yes, of course, the top line is going to be better than your fourth line. But the fact of the matter is, you have contributors, you have guys on every single stage of the team who are able to step up and have big moments for the team. Regardless of whether or not you're a star, you've got guys on the Sharks right now stepping up and having good performances. And I think that it's something to pay attention to is that we saw Evander Kane get hot and carry the team for a bit, and we've seen Logan Couture have his point streak, and we've had Tomas Hurdle putting up high-level performances, different guys are getting it done. And I think that we're starting to see more and more from Jumbo. Listen, I know some people were saying, oh, he looks old right now or he doesn't look as good as he does last year. The guy is not young. You know, he's going to take a little bit to get going. And 
That's just how it is. I mean, he's 40 years old. He's going to be the guy that understands his body and doesn't exert too much early on, and he's going to know how to pace himself and be able to put his best performance out there on the ace when you're later and later into the year. But you have these guys on every level who are able to contribute, plus with the tightening up of the team on defense and not having as much sloppy play out there is what haunted them through the month of October. That's not to say that we don't at times see it, but they've been correcting it. I mean, Brent Burns, sometimes he plays really, really loose and it pays off, and other times it comes back to bite you. That's just the way it goes. There is a give and take of what we see stylistically with a guy like Burns or a guy like Carlson at times, but you're seeing more of the chemistry gel. You're seeing more and more of Pete DeBoer figuring out this team, and you want that to occur. And I hate to keep on hammering this, but it's like when we were in the month of October, I kept on saying, this doesn't represent what I expect to see from the Sharks. I expect to see X, Y, and Z. I expect to see this team play. That wasn't what we were getting. And overall, I was waiting for the correction. And that's just the case of what I think we are looking at right now. Overall, the Sharks are getting better and better and better. And that's exactly what you want to see. But one thing that I look at that I think people may have disregarded or they may be overlooked is that you sign Eric Carlson and you see Joe Pavelski leave in free agency. And I think you looked at the roster on paper and you said, okay, this is still a very, very good team. And I think people overall undervalued the calming presence of Joe Pavelski and the fact that he was a, you know, 40 goal scorer that you could rely on on any given night and that that calming presence would have done more for the team in the early goings. I don't think it's just adjusting to a new team out there on the ice. And I don't in any way want to question the leadership abilities of Logan Couture because I, you know, I have an incredible faith in him. But I think that when I look at the Sharks and I look at what Joe Pavelski provided, I think it was underrated how a team has to adjust to a loss of their captain. And yes, there were tough decisions that needed to be made, and I do not hold that against anyone inside the Sharks' front office because I think that if you honestly ask yourself, do you want the guy who's in his mid-30s or do you want the guy who's in the prime of his career, you take the guy in the prime of his career. But to underestimate what happens to a team when one of the foundation pieces of the franchise moves on that's going to have an impact, and I think it had an impact early on, and I think the Sharks are overcoming that piece of the puzzle, and I think it was a piece of the puzzle that people did not want to talk about just because it's not a statistic. It's not something that you were recognizing on the ice. You can't look at a team and say, that's the lack of the former captain. That's the lack of their leadership. That's the lack of their traits that were able to be a positive for the team before because that's not really how you look at sports. You can say that, oh, they don't have the tip play, and you recognize that, but you don't look at the psychological aspect out there on the ice the same way that you do look at other factors and numbers and statistics. And I think that's something the Sharks have been getting over, and I think it's something that people also, they kind of tried to downplay. And I don't mean they, you know, the Sharks didn't want to talk about it. It's like, oh, let's not talk about Pavelski. It's no, you just, you don't want to talk about something that isn't there. You don't want to second-guess decision-making. You don't want to try and undermine the guys that are out there on the ice. That's just not how you go about things. But to me, it definitely played a factor. And we've watched the Sharks continue to evolve. And it's not, to me, always about the numbers. It's not, to me, always about the 
individual performances night to night. I think there is a bigger picture. I think there are things that impact teams, and that was one that the Sharks were battling with early on. And as a credit to Logan Couture and as a guy that are wearing the A's out there, they have that leadership group. They had veterans like Patty Marlowe come in and step up. They have a calming presence in Pete DeBoer behind them every single night. You were able to overcome an adversary, a difficulty that you were maybe not giving as much credit to as probably should have been given because it's hard. There's a part of a fan as well. When you look at things, you don't want to focus on what is not there anymore. Right, You want to focus on what's there on the ice. And so you said this team has Tomas Hurdle, they've got Logan Couture, they've got Eric Carlson, they've got Mark Edward Vlasic, they've got Brent Burns, and you saw all these high-level players that were not playing at the level that we expected them to be, and that's what you're reacting to. And of course, that's what you should react to. But I just think when I go big picture, when I look at the team, I look at the loss of Joe Pavelski in the early part of the season as being a bigger factor than people ultimately wanted to give credence to. And so now as the Sharks continue to play better, as they continue to develop into a new team with overall a new leadership structure, I think that we see this team progressing nicely and turning into the team that we all thought they were capable of being. All right, let's continue back with my conversation with Dan Rusinowski as we talk about the fact that Pete DeBoer was able to really be that settling presence when things were not going well in the early part of the season. Let's talk about Pete DeBoer for a second because there, in the midst of that rough start, was a lot of pressure from the media. There was a lot of pressure from the fan base. And then Pete's reaction to that was never to go after his guys in the media. Not that that's ever been his style per se, but he could have been more critical to send more of a message. But the most out-and-out critical thing that he said of the team as a whole was, we're playing soft right now, we need to play hard, or something, I'm paraphrasing, but it was something along those lines. And when guys had individually bad nights, he wouldn't try and sugarcoat it or anything, but he, he didn't panic, and I think that's... Uh, something to be said because he could have sent more of a message. He could have tried to have been more forceful through the media, but he played it pretty cool. I mean, he's been hot after some games, wins and losses, but overall he didn't, you know, he didn't go over the top. He kind of was patient with his team, which is pretty rare in the, in the modern sports world. He's a top professional. I, I think that he's somebody that understands the pulse of his club. He's great at working with uh, his assistant coaches, and he's got some great ones to delegate some of the duties to. And he observes everything from a 35,000-foot a level. He's, he's able to deal with the immediacy of any individual problem that might happen, but he's also able to do that within the context of getting the big picture i.e. the 35,000-foot view of where he wants his team to go. I think the Sharks are really lucky to have him. He's a, a great bench coach. He really responds well to things on the ice, and, and I don't know how some of these guys do it because we can see the uh, you know all of the trends from up top. It's a little bit easier to see. It's an easier game from up there in the mm-hmm. press box. Uh, he's got some help up there, Dave Barr, Johan Hedberg, also in the eyes in the sky looking and communicating with Steve Spot on the bench. But uh, but I, I just think he's really good at, at understanding what's going on and what needs to happen. You'll see him uh, make a change in the line or you'll see him double shift a group that's going well. And that's hard to do at, at that level, but it's one of the reasons why he's one of the truly best coaches in the game. And uh, as I said, the Sharks are fortunate to have his skills available to them. Again, we've got Dan Rusinowski here on Morning Tide. Another big factor and a guy that 
Pete DeBoer has always thrown his weight behind is Martin Jones. He's been playing much better. And I even go back to some of the confidence-building stops he had even at the start of the year when he wasn't necessarily uh, as good of a, a goalie as we all know he's capable of being. That, for lack of a better term, wild win against the Wild when they came roaring back. He had a great toe-poke save where he just stretched out there and was able to keep the puck from going in after they had taken, I believe, a 6-2 lead and then it ended up being a 6-5 win. But stops like that, and he's had some other huge stops. Um, what do you think the difference has been with him, Dan? Because I, when I watch Martin Jones, it seems like when he's not playing well, he just he to me does not look physically as comfortable. But when we were watching him last night, it just seems like his vision is more comfortable. His push to the post, his butterfly, he'll come out of the crease a little bit more. Uh, to me, there's a very visible confidence in Martin Jones, at least, and that's at least to me. But like you can see it when he's having a good game more than just the numbers of stops. His body language is a little different. Well, there's a whole different uh, set of directions I could go with with this one. I, I, I think that one of the most important factors that you started with was the confidence that the coaches have shown in him going back last year to the Stanley Cup playoffs. Mm -hmm. I remember there was some speculation as to whether he would start the next game in this series against Vegas and all that. And uh, Pete never wavered and he never has. I go back even further. I remember um, a couple of back-to-back -back set of games, and I'm not exactly sure when this happened, but it was a back-to-back -back set of game with Pittsburgh and Detroit. And in Pittsburgh, things did not go well. And everybody assumed that Aaron Dell was probably going to be in goal the next game. But Pete came back and said, you know, Martin Jones is my goaltender, and he's playing in this game. And he had a fabulous game in Detroit at, uh, at the Little Caesars Arena and then went on to have the great rest of the year and, and continue to go. You know, this is something that, that I think gets back to one of the most important aspects of modern-day coaching. Not that it's really modern-day. It's always been there, but it's more important than ever, Ted. And that is uh, the players are willing to accept accountability and even willing to accept some tough talk when they realize and totally believe the fact that the coach that's delivering that message believes in them. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the most important part of, of being a great coach to impart uh, that sense of belief along with the expectation and the accountability. And again, the Sharks are lucky in that they have someone and a group of people, actually, the entire staff, that continuously does that. They communicate well together. Um, one guy can play the good cop. One guy can play the bad cop. Uh, not exactly all that different than raising a family. And that gets back to the fact that uh, the coaches do have kids that are in the same age group as some of the players or a little bit younger. Yeah. And so they understand the, you know, the, the psyche of, of, of the modern teenager or young adult. And I think that that's another factor that they have along with uh, people like Joe Thornton and Patrick Marlowe, who are sort of surrogate big brothers that, uh, <laughs> you know, are the cool guy that they might listen to if they don't listen to the parents, you know how that works. I remember when you were growing up, Ted, you probably had, uh, somebody in your life that uh, when you're, when you're, when Hal was yelling at you, uh, somebody else was saying, no, you really should do it this way. And you kind of went his way and thought you were rebelling against, against dad, but you weren't doing that. I mean, that happens to all of us. It's, it's funny though, that you bring this up, Dan, because I think it's something that gets really lost in modern sports, which people go all in on X's and O's and statistics is that so much of it is the literal psychological aspect of a coach coaching up their guy. I mean, if you do want to go in the Bay Area, 
Bruce Bochy willing to go with guys even if they'd had troubles as of late and he would believe in them? Or you want to talk about Steve Kerr and the way that he's, you know, said, hey, I'm not going to have a problem with my guy continuing to shoot even if he's having a bad night because he's done it in the past. It's these guys that are over, they're willing to overlook the the interim failures because they see the big picture. They know what their players are capable of. And you can take it, you know, to many great coaches in sports history, but that all gets lost so much, again, in the talk of numbers and X's and O's or systems or schematics or whatever it may be. Well, Bill Walsh was the one who always said that you have to always let your players know that you believe in them. Not only just give them ideas that they can figure out, but you actually have to actually tell them that. And, you know, Bob Melvin with the Oakland A's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all the all the coaches you mentioned um, in the Bay Area. We've been really lucky to have great coaches like Pete DeBoer and like those guys you talked about uh, who do this all the time. And, and I also think uh, that the atmosphere that the Sharks have, too, of what I would call a sort of a Silicon Valley entrepreneurial sort of atmosphere where um, they don't worry if Brent Burns has a beard or, or if you have some tattoos. They worry about what he's like when he shows up to work. And he so they give uh, players like that, like Evander Kane, uh, like several others who might not have had good experiences in other places they played before. And they allow them to be themselves and also impart uh, input into solutions. And I think that that entrepreneurial sort of spirit which we have here in Silicon Valley, goes right into the hockey team. It's the way that Doug Wilson wants it to be. And uh, we see that on the ice all the time. And so as we look ahead, Dan, to what is next for the San Jose Sharks, they can't ostensibly continue to be this good because that's just not how sports are. But what is your realistic expectation as we head into the final month of 2019? Well, are you talking about for the rest of the calendar year? Yeah, let's just let's just go until the rest of 2019 is over, you know, just to, of what's next on the schedule. Obviously, they've got some East Coast games well, coming up, first, always challenging. Yeah, the first thing they've got to deal with before they do that is a home game against the Washington Capitals. And, of course, um, think about this. The New York Islanders went 17 straight games without a regulation loss, and they're still a whole bunch of points behind the Washington Capitals. That's yeah. how good they've been. Uh, Alex Ovechkin is one of the greatest goal scorers of all time. So he only comes here once in the regular season. I think fans should clamor to change their plans on uh, on a Tuesday night if they're they're not really doing anything special because this guy is uh, one of the greatest players that we will ever see. He plays he's a complete package kind of a, a player um, with his scoring ability, but also with his ability to body check, his mm-hmm. skating speed, everything. Then you got John Carlson on that team who has been at the top of the NHL defenseman list in scoring. And he's one of the USA's better examples of a great hockey player. And uh, so that's, that's how the month begins. But then right after that, they go all the way back east for a trip that starts in North Carolina against the Hurricanes team. It's one of the more tougher teams to play against. You know, the old bunch of jerk story that started last year um, <laughs> when, when Don Cherry uh, made that comment about them. They, they kind of embraced that and made it a movement. But they have all those uh, things that happen at the end of the game after they win. And, of course, uh, every team is very motivated to, to stop any of that sort of celebration at the end of any night in in, uh, in Carolina. So we start out on Tobacco Road. Then we go down for a back-to-back set of games uh, in Tampa and in Florida, uh, two tough teams to play against on the road. And then after that, uh, another rematch with Nashville. And that is uh, going to be a big one, too. So think about that schedule. 
it's really, really difficult just to open up the month and a whole bunch of games at home, which I think are going to be fun against some Eastern conference clubs, uh, LA coming back, a couple of other teams, uh, you know, Arizona will be back in mid December. So this is a very challenging month too, with the games all stacked together. And that's going to be the next part of it. This is the grind of the year. You know, usually it used to start around game 15 when the NHL was maybe a little slower, but maybe a little bit more physical away from the play with the interference and the, you know, the body checking that the, the officials were kind of looking away from 20, 25 years ago. <laughs> but I, I think the grind hits now about game 25. And I think the big challenge right now, when you think about that, and I'm watching it closely, are players like Dylan Gambrell, uh, but more so Mario Ferraro. Mm -hmm. uh, Mario played college hockey last year. And I just talked to him a couple games ago, and I said, you know, you're coming up to close to game 25 in your NHL career. How do you compare this between uh, the NHL's 25th game and maybe Hockey East's 25th game? And he said, well, he says in Hockey East, you're getting close to the end of the season when you're at game 25. And so he is going through that adjustment, and they typically um, go through a period where they might hit the wall a little bit. I think you have to monitor that. I think Mario is a pretty special kid. The way that he prepares, I think he should probably be able to handle it just fine. But every player goes through that when they get to that next level. And Dylan Gambrell, you know, they, that was a 68-game season that the American Hockey League plays in the Western Division or the Pacific Division. So um, he's still uh, going to have to go through that himself as well when he gets to about game 70. And I think that uh, these are things you have to just monitor. You, you depend on your depth, but that's where you really depend also on your veterans to guide the guys through it. And I think this month of December is going to show all of that. It's just a real grind right about till the All-Star break. And then what happens is you get your second win. Um, you know, you start getting excited about the playoff race. You're looking at your position in the standings a little bit more closely. And uh, you're realizing what it's going to take. And so that drive, that sprint at the end is is really exciting and filled with adrenaline for everybody. But right now it's just plain old hard work. You have to get through the bumps and the bruises. You have to deal with a lot of different things that happen from about game 25 to about game 60. And uh, that's that's the interesting part of this year. No different than a lot of other sports. Um, you know, when uh, you know when you're at game number 85 in the Major League Baseball season, or um, you know maybe uh, game seven or eight in the NFL, it, this is a time when you're really benefiting from the routine and the procedures that you just keep going back to each and every day. And you know um, that brings me full circle back earlier to that little discussion about Martin Jones. Is I think that that dedication to that process and just doing it the same way every single day, no matter what happens, gets you through some of those hard times. And then all of a sudden things start going well for you and your team. And, uh, you know, the, the sharks are finding different ways to win, which is great. Uh, on average, uh, maybe eight to 10 guys are going really well any given night. And that changes as to who they are. But uh, that often also gets you through the grind stage because different people start contributing and making things happen. Dan, always a pleasure. I know you've got stuff to do, so I will let you go. But, um, again, we could do this all day, I'm sure. And then anyway, anybody who is not listening to these broadcasts on 98.5 or 102.1 inside the arena, you're doing yourself a disservice. Ruzi is the, uh, is the best. But always a pleasure uh, talking to you, Dan, and I will see you uh, Tuesday night to watch you as maybe one of three announcers in the NHL who are make sure to properly say Alex Ovechkin because most guys leave out the E sound and just say Ovechkin. You are one of three, I think, who gets in Ovechkin. 
Well, you try to do the best you can. I mean, <laughs> given the fact that my family came from Eastern Europe, I'm a little sensitive to it. I've got some trouble with the Danish and Swedish names still, but <laughs> do the best I can with all those guys. But uh, OV is a great player. I'm looking forward to calling his name. Just uh, not a lot about a lot of goals, but yes. a lot of saves instead. Yes, yes. It's hard to, hard to get those saves against him, but he'll make it entertaining at the very least. But thank you so much, Dan. We'll do it again soon, all right? Thanks, Ted. Dan Rusinowski, everyone, the radio play-by-play voice of the San Jose Sharks. So we look ahead now to what is going to be a big week and really a big stretch of five games as we look into the next week. It's uh, it's going to be huge for the Sharks. They've got to take on Washington, and then they've got to take on some really, really good teams on the East Coast before they still play against Nashville a week from Tuesday. Then they're finally back home against the Rangers, but This is a challenging stretch for the Sharks, and this is where these questions that we had of them in October, and then they turned it around in November, now it becomes which is more of the reality. When they're going up against these good teams at home or on the road, which Sharks team is going to show up? And that, to me, is the question that we're waiting to have answered and will gain more clarity. And uh, listen, I am confident the Sharks can take three out of five in this stretch, not is all lost if they only take one or two. If they lose all five, then that's going to put them at a severe deficit, obviously. But the Sharks, they're a good team, just like the opposition they'll be facing over the next five games. And over these next five games, we will gain clarity. It's not going to be the end answer of what all these teams are over the course of the season, but you have tests. Do you pass them or do you fail them? And if you do fail a test, can you make corrections before the next test happens? It's December. We're in the thick of things. Buckle up, everyone. This is going to be fun. All right, I want to give a big thanks to Dan Rusinowski for taking some time out of his Sunday to talk with me about the San Jose Sharks, and I want to thank all of you for tuning in as well, and of course the San Jose Sharks for making this podcast a reality. For the San Jose Sharks, I'm Ted Ramey, signing off.